Gospel of Luke. Today in Luke chapter 23, beginning our reading and study in verse 6. And as you turn to verse 6, you will notice that it begins with the phrase, when Pilate heard this, uh, which begs the question, when he heard what? Uh, so we're going to back up uh, in our reading today to verse 4 to see what gives rise to this. We're looking, as we're studying through Luke's gospel, we're looking uh, at the trial of Christ. And last week, uh, we saw Jesus before the Sanhedrin and Jesus before Pilate for the first time. Uh, today, as we read God's word, we're going to see Jesus shuffled off to Herod and then brought back to Pilate. And we will uh, hear the cries of the Jewish people as Pilate again for a second and third time declares Jesus innocent in their presence. So today we're going to be reading chapter 23, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 25. That's on page 883 of the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 25. Before we read this word together, let's join our hearts in prayer and seek God's blessing on it as we study. Let's pray. O Lord our God, as we come and open your word, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the work of opening our hearts. Help us to see wonderful things, behold wonderful things in your law, as the psalmist says, help us to run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge our hearts. O Lord, do a work by your spirit that we can't do for ourselves, not in our intellect, not in our learning, not in uh, our social understanding of any of the things happening in this passage, but you, by your spirit, can draw us to greater faith in Jesus Christ, repentance from our sin, and an understanding and an application of the gospel as it touches our lives. I pray that you would do it and that you would be glorified through your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 23, beginning to read in verse 6. Sorry, beginning to read in verse 4, studying verse 6. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a 
a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. The third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was several years ago now, several summers ago, that a group of young men posted an ad, a now famous ad, uh, in Craigslist out in Washington State. The advertisement was a help-wanted ad looking for what they called a generic father figure to grill hamburgers and hot dogs at their backyard barbecue. As you read the advertisement, you learned that it was this group of early 20-somethings who were hoping to throw a party, and as they talked about who would do the various duties in the party, they realized that none of them felt competent to serve as what they called a grill dad. And so they put out this request. They were seeking a man, they said, with a minimum of 18 years fathering experience to handle the cooking for them. Uh, additional duties included uh, referring to all attendees as big guy, chief, champ, or sport. They also wanted him to talk about dad things like lawnmowers, Jimmy Buffett, and building their own deck. Now, finally, reassuring the readers that the ad was a genuine call for help, they also mentioned that preference would be given to applicants named Bill, Randy, or Dave. Now, it is, uh, it's pretty lighthearted, and it's probably so lighthearted that what we should do with that sort of thing is just laugh and move on with our day, but I couldn't leave it alone, and it made me think, made me wonder, if what these guys wanted was a father figure at their party, why didn't they just invite their father? Uh, it's funnier this way, right? Uh, there's a comedic effect, this idea of some random guy in a Hawaiian shirt dealing with the charcoal, but maybe their fathers live far away. Uh, maybe their fathers are estranged. Short of the comedic effect, I, I bet any of their fathers could have uh, done exactly what they wanted out of an honorary grill dad at their party, probably much more, but maybe that's the problem. There is a difference between a generic father figure and a real-life dad. It's one thing to hang out with a guy who has raised some kids. It's another thing to have a relationship with the man that raised you. Real dads might show up with their own hang-ups, with their own awkwardnesses, with their own uh, relational baggage that might spoil the fun. Real dads might show up with expectations of their own that would hang in the background of their party and spoil their barbecue. I think the same dynamic holds true when we think of earthly expectations for a Messiah versus the real one who actually showed up in Jerusalem. 
imagine the help wanted ads that could have been published in Craigslist around about 33 AD. Wanted, generic Messiah figure to perform miracles for royal party. Must be able to work in a high pressure environment without losing your head. Maybe another one. Wanted, generic Messiah figure able to make himself easy to acquit in a public trial. Must be willing to take the heat to the Jewish people without interrupting a promising career in Roman governance. Preference given to applicants without prior experience. Or maybe the last one, wanted. Generic Messiah figure, able to break the shackles of Rome and let us live our lives as we please. Thank you very much. As you read this passage before us, there is actually a thread that runs through this account of the trial of Jesus. And the thread that runs through the account of the trial of Jesus is a thread of desire. You see it in verse 8. Herod was glad to see Jesus, for he had long desired to see him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. You see it through Pilate, verse 20. It says that Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. And you find it again in verse 25, telling us that Pilate released the man who'd been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus over to their will, and the word will there is the same as the word for desire. It shows up as a verb two earlier times in our passage. So here is a thread, an idea of desire throughout this passage. There are three separate parties, and they each have different expectations for what the Messiah ought to be, what they want from him or what they want for him. And actually, the greatest barrier in this passage for all of the people other than Jesus, the greatest barrier keeping them from trusting in who Jesus actually is is their desire for who they want Jesus to be. And so with God's help, we're going to see today three wrong ways to desire Jesus. We're going to see it through the eyes of Herod and Pilate and the Jewish people. Herod is our first example, and he might be the saddest of the three parties because it was Herod who desired Jesus merely for entertainment. As our passage reopens in verse 6, we see Pilate engaging that time-honored political tradition of passing the buck. Actually, it was common practice for Roman governors uh, to seek some advice from the local rulers when there were difficult cases, especially when there were difficult cases that involved local customs or local religious law or things like that. That's why you remember in Acts chapter 25 that, that Festus, the Roman governor, had another Herod, Herod Agrippa, come and help him think through what they should do with this Paul who is preaching. You see, the Romans assumed that regional rulers would have uh, a closer first-hand knowledge of the details of Jewish law that might inform what was going on behind the scenes of uh, the various factions in front of them. In the case of Herod Antipas here in Luke 23, that certainly was the case. He had first-hand experience of the things that were going on here. We won't rehearse the whole story, but you probably know that this Herod was the son of uh, that half-Jew, uh, half-Edomite Herod the Great. Herod the Great was Rome's puppet king. He, he ruled over, in a sense, under Rome, but over the, the kingdom of the Jews at the time of Jesus' birth. But this man was Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. 
He's the same Herod who had John the Baptist put in prison and then beheaded to appease his wife. He's the same Herod, rather, back in chapter 13 that tried to have Jesus killed when Jesus was still ministering in the northern province of Galilee. But before he had John the Baptist put to death, we read in Mark's gospel that when Herod heard John preach, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. There was something about John and about his preaching that caught Herod's attention. Maybe it was the way that he spoke uh, truth to power. Maybe it was uh, his wild demeanor or, or his strange clothes. Whatever it was, Herod was a man who at least at one time had been drawn to the prophet that God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He loved to hear him, actually. We find that Herod only put John to death begrudgingly because of a public promise that he had made. So Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because Pilate wanted somebody with closer knowledge to the controversy, and that's what he got. Herod was acquainted with categories of sin and righteousness. Herod was a man who had heard the, the preparatory message of John, the message of repentance and faith in the Messiah who was to come. By the time he enters the scene here in verse 8, Herod is a man who has come so close to true religion that he has had his conscience pricked. But he has also rejected true religion enough to have his conscience seared. All the preaching of John the Baptist produced no fruit in keeping with repentance in Herod's life. Instead, out of the abundance of Herod's heart came flagrant sin, came, came rebellion and unbelief. Despite that message that he once heard so gladly, Herod is now a man for whom sin and righteousness is merely a laughing matter. The eternal Son of God is standing before his face in his very presence, and he can only think about the next sensation that he can experience. There's an important detail in Luke's word choice. Verse 8, he says that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. That's not the normal word that Luke uses for Jesus' miracles. John uses it a lot, where he structures his entire gospel around seven signs that Jesus performed, uh, and a sign is a miracle that means something. It is a heavenly authentication that Jesus actually is the Christ that the Lord was sending into the world, but Herod is not looking for heavenly authentication. Herod is looking for a little pizzazz. Herod is looking for another parlor trick. He's like the generation that Jesus preached so much about. The evil generation that Jesus said is always seeking another sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The generation says, show us one more thing, they say. We'll believe you next time. Show us something fantastic. Show us something that will cause us to believe in, in what you've come to do, Jesus. We'll be satisfied if you just show us one more. But actually, Herod won't be satisfied. He's also a part of that generation that is never satisfied. The generation that says, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. 
It says we sang a dirge for you and you didn't weep. It's the generation that wants God to dance along together with their tune, and they are always disappointed when God does not meet their immediate expectations. There are people who play the same game with religion today. Some people do it in a respectable sort of highbrow way. They make religion into an entertainment. They take up the study of religions as a sort of academic pastime. They gather their, their theories about who Jesus might be, like so many dusty books on a shelf somewhere. They make theology another interesting topic of conversation, yet they never make the Christ of the Scriptures a part of their daily faith and repentance. They come to him to have their, their intellect stimulated, but they never come to him to have their sins forgiven. There are other people who make religion into entertainment in a lowbrow sort of demeaning way, and this is far more common, and you know these people. They're in your extended family. You see them maybe once a year. It's that sibling, it's that cousin who was also raised hearing the same gospel message that you heard. The seed was also planted into the soil of their hearts, but who knows, maybe the devil came and snatched it away. Maybe the cares of, of this life stole its soil and gave it no roots. Maybe the, the earthly afflictions that they've experienced choked it out and made it seem all so irrelevant. And eventually the gospel and the savior of the gospel becomes something different to them than he is to you. He was something familiar at first, almost something quaint. And then he was something questionable. And he was something laughable, and finally he was something preposterous. And now when you see them, the name of Christ appears on their lips only ever as a curse word. Only ever as a reason to roll their eyes and to scoff at that perfunctory prayer before the meal. Well, Herod was like that. He'd heard the gospel, he had rejected the gospel, and now uh, he could only think of the next sensation he could gain, even from Jesus standing before him. He could only think of the next entertainment. Well, Phil Riken says one way or another, Herod would have his fun. So when Jesus refused to perform any tricks, he used him for sport. He mocked him and he, he ridiculed him. He sent him back to Pilate dressed as some reject king in a ridiculous robe. Well, Herod desired Jesus, but Herod only desired Jesus for entertainment. Pilate only desired Jesus as a source of convenience. When Herod sent Jesus back, Pilate now makes one more attempt to prove to the rulers of Israel, to prove to the religious leaders that actually Pilate is the man in charge of Jerusalem. It's the move that, that he had to make, in a sense, because already Jesus had been tried. He delivered his verdict back in verse 4. Already Jesus has been tried by the power of Rome and found not guilty, but they keep pressing for a conviction. And Pilate knows that if the Sanhedrin is able to get him to kill this innocent man, then probably they're going to try to get him to kill another innocent man. Anytime some other leader comes up that they don't like, and pretty soon Pilate is going to be nothing but the Sanhedrin's lapdog, fetching their slippers and killing their prophets and, and taking care of all the things that they might want to have done. 
Well, Pilate had to assert Roman authority. He had to do it in the right way. If he pushed too hard, he, he, would, uh, he would risk a riot. What Pilate really needed was the help of public opinion. So you notice uh, that this time he calls together not only the chief priest, not only the rulers, but also now the people. Up to this point, they haven't been in the scene. It's been all between uh, the leaders and the leader. But now all of the people of Jerusalem are gathered together, and, and this was a strategic move. The people had always been a buffer between the Sanhedrin and Jesus. They were the ones who loved this prophet, and maybe now as the courtyard was filling with the populace, Pilate could gain the upper hand, reassert his, his power. And so with a loud, clear voice, Pilate stands and he delivers his verdict yet again. And this time it seems a little more formal. There's a little more authority, a little bit more pomp to what Pilate says. It sounds more like a legal declaration. You notice he, he rehearses the details of the case. He talks about the fact that he was brought and here are the charges and I've examined him in your presence and he talks about the other witnesses, Herod to be exact, who, who added his expert testimony to the whole thing and then he declares his verdict and finally pronounces this suitable punishment. He says, verse 14, picking up in the second half, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. He says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. That last line strikes us as maybe mildly unconstitutional. But actually, the Romans did this. This was a highly pragmatic move. Often the Roman uh, rulers, especially when they were dealing with people who were not Roman citizens, often they would give them a beating before they released them, even though they were innocent, as a sort of preemptive warning to, uh, to take better care next time. So you remember again in Acts 22, there was that Roman tribune who decided that Paul should be examined, and what better way to examine Paul than by flogging him? A man uncondemned, and, and that was okay until he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and then uh, Luke tells us he was very afraid. Well, here, this, uh, this flogging, this beating, wasn't about, wasn't about teaching Jesus any kind of lesson. It was a half measure aimed at appeasing the Jews. Maybe if I give them something, I don't want to give them everything, because if I give them everything, they're going to take more from me later. But if I give them something, if I give them this Jesus whipped and flogged and his flesh torn and bloody, instead of having him hauled out and crucified, maybe that will be enough. It's another indication that actually Pilate didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about uh, the Jewish leadership. He didn't even seem to care about real justice. The only thing Pilate was concerned about was keeping the peace just enough to keep his position intact. Thomas Sowell wrote, No one really understands politics until they understand that politicians are not trying to solve our problems. They're trying to solve their own problems, of which getting elected and getting re-elected are number one and number two. Well, Pilate is a political animal. He's looking out for his 
own problems. His entire career, his standing in life, is about walking that tightrope between keeping his subjects in check on behalf of Rome and keeping his subjects happy on behalf of himself. So when you read in verse 20 that Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, don't take that as some statement of a deep morality working in Pilate's life. No, if Pilate really wanted to let Jesus go free, he was the man that could make it happen. In John's gospel, he makes that point to Jesus. Don't you recognize that I have the power to have you crucified or to let you go free? Pilate knows the power that he has. All of Rome is at his beck and call. As it is, in the end, Pilate got what he wanted. He didn't get it the way that he hoped, but he got what he wanted. In the end, Pilate got to live to govern another day. And Jesus was handed over to quell the mobs and to silence the riots. Robert Stein puts it this way. He had the authority to release an innocent man or to crucify him. And he chose the latter to preserve his political career. As a result, history and the church will always confess that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pilate is not without his heirs today in our world. Every day all over the world, people are uh, presented with the claims of the gospel and confronted with that eternal question, what will you do with Jesus Christ? He shows up into your life and suddenly there's a crisis and what will you do with him? And maybe here in Massachusetts in a different time, maybe in a different century, that question uh, was worded in, in a way of saying, will taking an interest in Jesus help me to uh, advance in an overwhelmingly Christian society? You see, sometimes that question is asked in a, a sort of method of convenience or, or pragmatism, a way to answer the, the fleeting felt needs of our daily moments. So at another time, and, and perhaps in this very place, we, we would ask, will taking an interest in Jesus help me to advance in an overwhelmingly Christian society? Will it make me seem more employable? Will it make me seem more intelligent? Will it make business deals easier to close with my neighbors? Will it make my children easier to marry off? Will taking an interest in Jesus give me standing in my community? Will it give me respectability? Today, the pragmatic question in Massachusetts is almost exactly reversed. Will denying Jesus give me advancement in this overwhelmingly secularized society? Will denying Jesus make me more employable? Will it make me seem more intelligent? Will rejecting Jesus give me standing? Will it give me respectability? In other places, like Pakistan, where we pray for the persecuted church, the Pragmatic question is more of, if I take Jesus, will I lose my family? Will I lose my home, my freedom, or my life? You see, Pontius Pilate desired Jesus for his own convenience. And Herod Antipas desired Jesus for his own entertainment. And that is the detail that explains the riddle of verse 12. 
that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. Luke doesn't tell us what the enmity was about. He doesn't tell us exactly what it was that reconciled them here and now. But perhaps finally these competing men, these magistrates, had something they could share in common. Both men wanted Jesus. Perhaps both men unwanted Jesus. Not for what he had come to do or what he had come to offer, but for what they could gain for themselves. It happened the way that it often happens in our world, that unbelievers of various stripes find a common bond in their shared rejection of Christ the Savior. And so Herod wanted entertainment and Pilate wanted convenience, and the Jewish people desired Jesus for their own independence. It's the nagging question that hangs over this last week of ministry for Jesus in Jerusalem. The question is, how do we account for this dramatic shift in the public opinion among the people regarding Jesus? How do we go from Sunday with the cries of Hosanna to Friday with the cries of crucify him? Where does this come from? How do we figure it out? Verse 18 tells us they all cry together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. Then again, verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Finally, the solemn crescendo of verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so that in the end, we're told that when Pilate realized that he could not reason with this angry mob, he handed Jesus over. He didn't hand him over to his guilt. He didn't hand him over to his sentence. He handed him over to their desire. It's what the people Wanted. But how do we explain it? One answer to this, uh, this problem is what I have previously called the Katy Perry hypothesis. You're aware of the pop song, right? You're hot, then you're cold. You're yes, then you're no. And you've probably heard a sermon that tries to explain this whole phenomenon just on the basis of the fickle hearts of these people who knew about Jesus. First they love him, and then they hate him, and who knows? But that's the human heart, right? It's a helpful explanation, especially when we want to understand the fickleness of our own hearts. And it it goes pretty far in understanding what's going on in the minds of these people, but it seems a little too simple, perhaps. And so there's another explanation, and this is the political intrigue explanation. It says that the people themselves didn't have a whole lot to do with this at all. The political intrigue hypothesis says that that really those who were involved in the trial were just pawns, just clay in the hands of the religious leadership. It says that it was really the Sanhedrin who orchestrated the rejection of Jesus, who put this language of crucifixion into the mouths of the people. Actually, that explanation has some weight. Mark chapter 15, verse 11, says it was the chief priests who stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. But that too almost seems a little bit too easy. I mean, if the priests are stirring up the crowds, yes, that's one thing, but what was it about Barabbas that suddenly made him seem like a better choice than Jesus? And what gave the priests the idea to stir up the crowds? All of Holy Week, they have been avoiding the people because they're afraid of them, because they love Jesus so much. What is it about Jesus that emboldens them now? 
to stir up the crowds against him. And Luke tells us, verse 18, very clearly, priests, rulers, people alike, they all cried out together, that is, with one voice, away with this man. It's what they wanted, but how do we explain it? Now, for me, I think the best explanation uh, for this shift in support is not that the people are easily influenced. Not even that they are hopelessly fickle, because if anything, the people of Israel were absolutely consistent. They consistently expected from Jesus something other than what he had come to give them. And when at last, standing before Pilate, they realized that they would not get what they wanted, they were done with Jesus. Now, from the very beginning, Jesus was surrounded by disciples, by followers who expected and hoped that he had come to give political deliverance to the sons of Abraham. It was an earthbound hope for an earthbound kingdom. They wanted him to come in and break the bonds of Rome, to cast off the shackles of their oppressors, their Gentile oppressors, to let the earthly kingdom of Israel flourish, to give them a sort of proud established political independence. They wanted to live the self-governed life. And they desired Jesus because they thought he could give it to them. That's why on Palm Sunday they sang an enthronement psalm, Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They welcomed him as the next great David, the one who would bring a resurgence of the golden age of Israel where the borders were expanding and the pagans were cast off. By Friday morning, they saw him standing there, dirty and sweaty and bleeding and captive. And he looked like everything that they wanted their nation to be saved from. And one look was all it took to disabuse them of the notion that Jesus was here to usher in the golden age. If this is the king upon whom they had hung their political hopes, they might as well surrender now and live as slaves. That's why they chose for themselves Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty of all the things Jesus was innocent of and had just been declared innocent of. Barabbas was a man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection. He was a murderer. He was a political zealot, just like they accused Jesus of being, but given the choice between gentle Jesus, bound and broken, and zealous Barabbas, wild and violent, they chose what they always wanted. They chose a man that looked like freedom. And they rejected the man who looked like death. That's why many people still reject Jesus today. Because they realize that to follow Jesus means giving up on the self-governed life. Christ didn't come to break the Roman yoke. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. He came, and every disciple he calls, he calls to come after him and to die together with him. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. That the picture of him standing before Pilate bound and captive and bloody and dirty and sweaty is what we should consider ourselves to our former lives. He calls us to surrender our lives as well as our sin. He calls us to surrender our political ambitions. 
and our personal desires and our public reputations to his lordship. He calls us to submit our morality, even the secret morality that nobody else sees. He calls us to submit our morality to his standards. He calls us to submit our, st- our schedules and our hobbies and our labors and our gender roles and our defense mechanisms and our conflict resolutions and our sarcasm and our finances. Every last bit of it is supposed to be given over to him and not to ourselves. Why else does the New Testament so often call Christians the servants of God, literally the slaves of God? But for the fact that Jesus came to claim us as his own, to call us into his service, to make us his people and not our own. But given the choice between belonging to the actual Jesus and striking out in our own independent direction, many people choose the false freedom of unbelief. The reality of this passage is that almost everyone involved in the trial got exactly what they wanted. Herod got a laugh at Jesus' expense. Pilate got to keep his job, at least for a while. The Jews got to to say that they had nothing to do with that crucified Messiah. We stopped to consider that Jesus also got what he most desired in the trial. Jesus got the people that he came to redeem by his sacrifice. That's what he wanted. In the upper room with the disciples the night before his death, Jesus prayed, John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, I desire. He's about to be crucified and killed for his people, and Jesus says, this is what I want. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. If Jesus really wanted to evade the cross, if he really wanted to be free from the condemnation in place of sinners, Jesus was the man with the power to make that happen. He said he could say a word and call down 10,000 legions of angels to deliver him. It was the will of God to crush him. And it was the desire of Christ to complete the will of God. And so for the glory set before him, Christ endured the cross. Not for himself. Not for his comfort or or for his convenience. Not for his entertainment. Not for his autonomy. He submitted himself to death for the sake of sinners because that's what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desired for the ministry of the Messiah. And the question is, do you want the Jesus that God has offered by faith? Or do you want what you can gain for yourselves? Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the Savior who is. The one that you sent. Cleanse us, O Lord. Give us faith in him and eyes to see and believe, not in some generic messianic figure, but in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who laid down his life as a ransom for sinners. Thank you for calling us. Oh, Lord, refine our desires for Jesus over and over again. Cause us to cast off any false idol of what we want him to be and help us to see again and again in the scriptures who he is for us. 
Oh, Lord, cause us to walk with you. Help us to trust and believe in the Savior you've sent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.